There are two kinds of courage. I've said this before. There is the courage of someone who suddenly and without warning is confronted with a dangerous situation, a crisis, and without hesitation, almost recklessly, they throw themselves into it. You've seen it. Maybe you've done it yourself. Or there is the courage of a man who sees a very terrible situation from a long way off and somehow knows that nothing short of flight or running away can avoid it. And yet he, he moves steadfastly and deliberately in that direction. And there is no question which is the higher courage, is there? Many are capable of a heroic action or an effort in the spur of the moment uh, with a burst of adrenaline. But it takes a man of supreme courage and determination to face something which haunts him for days, for weeks, even for months. And which by turning, only by turning back could he escape. And that's what we're talking about as we begin this series this morning. You see, Jesus has been casting his eyes toward Jerusalem all of his life, knowing that the last week of his life would be the most significant and important. And in Mark's gospel, it takes up those la- that last week takes up 40% of the gospel. We have been going verse by verse through Mark. We took a break here recently, but now we're back in Mark, and we're going to follow Mark one day at a time to, to Easter Sunday. One day at a time as Mark records the chronology of events in Jesus' life. And so today, we're a little bit ahead of the game because Palm Sunday won't be for another six weeks. But we're going to talk about that Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of that week. And so if you have a Bible or you have a smartphone with the app, if you'll turn to uh, Mark's uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, and beginning with verse 1, we'll read the text together, the first 11 verses. This is what happens on Sunday. Now, this is the uh, English Standard Version that I'm reading from. Now, when he drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, going ahead, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt, the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on, their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Have you ever had a neighbor borrow something? Say, like a water hose, and they forget to bring it back, and and you start to wonder if you'll ever see it again? Especially, you know, after you put in the new landscaping out back between the fence and and the deck. And, And then one day you pull up in your driveway and you happen to notice in the neighbor's front yard in the flower bed attached to the hydrant, like your eyes have been going over there like really often over the last several months. But today, just like just today, it shows up. And garden hoses, I know, look a lot alike. I mean, pretty much alike. I mean, they're made out of rubber and have brass fittings on both ends. And, but you just swear that's your garden hose. And, and uh, now there's this fancy sprayer, you see, attached to one end of it. You know, the kind that has the little dial and so you can change the settings while you're, you know, while you're watering. And, and uh, so, so you ask yourself, do I say something? And you realize you haven't spoken uh, to one another about much lately. And so you find yourself putting on dark clothing and, and, um, and smearing like shoe polish on your face. And, um, and sneaking over there after dark and unscrewing it. And then you have this dilemma of what to do with the fancy spray nozzle on the other end. Uh, Do I drop it in the bushes or or do I just set it nicely on that rock over there in the landscape? And and while you're trying to decide, debating with yourself, like the porch light comes on? Like, has that ever happened to you? Raise your hand if that's (laughs) ever happened. Oh. Well, yeah, but you've all had neighbors that barred something, right, and didn't bring it back and... uh, it's really, it's a good thing Deb's not here. Now, sh- don't tell her, because I didn't ask her permission to tell that story. I mean, it took forever to get the shoe polish off her face, really. <laughs> no, I'm kidding about that. But how about, how about, have you ever borrowed something and then you just forgot to take it back? That ever happened? Yeah, I, I convicted this week, uh, you know, because... Uh, you know, when um, Deb and I moved into our house, uh, we were going to change out all this landscaping. And, and so uh, Benton and Lynn Ellis loaned us this book, Neil Sperry's book on Texas gardening. <laughs> Great book to do our landscape. And I just realized this week they're, they're moving up into Frisco close to us in, in a new house, and they're going to be landscaping. And I thought maybe, Benton, I should maybe bring you your book back. <laughs> I've only had it 16 years. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for loaning me that. I think I can preach now with a clear conscience, somewhat clear conscience. It seems that Jesus was always borrowing something. Here it's, it's a young donkey the Lord has need of it. 
they say to the keepers, and without so much as a raised eyebrow, the owner or the keeper lets him borrow it. Before it was a fishing boat that he used for a platform for his teaching. Or you remember there was a little boy's lunch that became food for a miracle. And even later this week, it will be a borrowed grave. For even in death, the Son of Man still has no place to lay his head. And you see the irony of it all, don't you? You do see the irony. This is the one whom Scripture proclaims created all things. Through him, all things, Scripture says, came into being. And yet he himself has nothing. Nada. He holds on to nothing. A king with not even so much as a young colt to his name, nor a denarius to rent one. He borrows one. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is your king who rides into your gates today Not on a proud Arabian horse. No planned pomp and circumstance. Just a a borrowed donkey. His feet almost dragging the ground on either side of that little animal. Meek. Meek in the truest sense of the word. And humble. He comes in peace. He comes in gentleness. Let me tell you where we're heading this morning. There are four things that I want you to see from this, on the surface, very bizarre, almost mystifying little text. The first is a fetching story. A fetching story and then a false coronation. A false coronation. Then a fitting entrance. And last, a forced choice. A fetching story. A false coronation a fitting entrance, and then a forced choice. Verse 1, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Attention, Willoughband, there's the word again, S-E-N-T, sent. We have an acronym for that, don't we? It's our vision as a church to live sent, like these disciples who are Sent. The S stands for what, church? Serving. And E stands for engaging our lives in relationship with one another and with new people and always making friends for the gospel, engaging with our lives. And then N stands for nurturing, where we find faith, we nurture, we pour ourselves in, we offer ourselves in that process of discipling and calling others deeper into relationship with Christ. And T stands for what? Trusting. We trust God to supply in every situation where he calls us. So these two disciples go on mission, right? And, and Mark provides us with a little bit of a detail here. Being the first of the four Gospels that were written, uh, many scholars believe that, that Peter was the source of information for this young John Mark. And, and, and many of the scholars even believe that probably because of the detail in this narrative, it was Peter himself who was one of the two. But they, 
they go looking for a young colt, it says, who had never been written. They're to fetch what? A donkey, a young colt. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, the Old Testament prophet said it this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation in his hand, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. To fulfill scripture, Mark tells us it was a donkey, it was a young colt that had never been written and that uh, ridden and that can only mean two things one of two things either jesus is in for a an adventure here sitting himself on the back of an animal that had never been broken that had never been ridden some of you remember you were here when we had loose stare at the horse whisperer here and with an unbroken horse and we went through that process you know, so jesus is either in for an adventure or secondly it means that this animal was set aside only for a very sacred use. And keep in mind, that was true in the Old Testament for rams and lambs and bulls that would be offered in sacrifice, that they could never be ridden, but, they're, but a donkey? Not exactly a sacrificial animal. And yet this donkey's keeper knew the prophets. He longed for the coming of Messiah, for that to be fulfilled and somehow, somehow he sensed, somehow he knew or he was instructed to be ready. Now, here's, here's how I think about this. This story of uh, the disciples fetching. Let's just suppose that I called Dustin and uh, Joseph Rios in my office and I said something like this. Hey, guys, uh, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to downtown Plano, um, you know, this afternoon. Downtown Plano. And there's a... There's a, a quick trip gas station there. You'll find a brand new, brand new, no miles on this thing, Ford F-150 pickup truck, dual cab, maroon in color. The keys are under the mat. Just go lift the mat up, get the keys, and bring it back. And if anybody says to you, why are you taking it? Just tell them, well, my pastor said he needs it. That's what this is like. If you're, if you're a disciple, that's about what this has got to feel like. Huh? Jesus, you want me to what? You're sending me where? To do what? That's what it would feel like. And yet they obeyed, didn't they? They did. They obeyed. That seems pretty presumptive. You see, when you think about the story, this fetching story, that that Jesus would send them and instruct them not to ask for the use of the donkey, just to take the donkey. Doesn't that seem presumptive to you? And if anyone does stop them to say, the Lord, the Lord has need of it. Now, the key word in that sentence is clear. It's the word kurios, the word for Lord, the word for master. In the Hebrew, it's, it's the word Adonai, same in either language. Do you understand what goes with the title, Curios? The Lord has need of it. It's a title which is often in Scripture given to God and to the Messiah. It's a title of honor and respect and reverence. Of course, uh, the, the title that a servant would use to address his master, the one having 
power, the one who has authority over a person or a, a thing. Originally, the word referred to one who was an owner, uh, the one who, to whom something belongs, a person or, or a thing belongs, over which he has the power of deciding what to do with that person or with that thing. You get it? So the best literal rendering of that, that explanation that Jesus gives to the disciples would go like this. If anyone asks, you tell them its master has need of it. That's the literal rendering of that. Its master has need of it. You see the difference? David the psalmist was very, very clear on this. In Psalm chapter 24 and verse 1. Psalm 24 verse 1. David said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. It's very clear. Okay, okay. Um, show of hands. All right, ready? How many of you own a donkey? Raise your hand. Oh, okay. Okay, well, wait, wait. Let's try it. Uh, how many of you own a flat screen TV? Raise your hand. Okay, wait a second. Now, we're going to read it again. Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay. How many of you own a microwave? Raise your hand. Like, listen, listen. Psalm 24, 1. Okay. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. How many of you own a smartphone? Raise your hand. Are you getting it now? <laughs> Is this starting to sink in just a little? Guys, Scripture's clear. We are only here as stewards of what He owns. And so we're to use it wisely. He gives us obviously the benefit to use it to care for ourselves and our families. But is it, is it not clear in Scripture? Jesus literally says to the keeper of the donkey, not the owner, because the owner is clear. He says, its Lord has need of it. So here's the simple, profound, profoundly simple question. See, what did Jesus send those disciples to fetch? No, not just a donkey. What was already rightfully his. What was already his. So the question for you, what are you going to do when he sins for something in your possession right now? What are you going to do when he asks for something from you? That's the fetching story. You know? Then let's talk about the false coronation. All four Gospels describe this scene. The, donkey, the guys come back with the donkey. The disciples begin to put their, their cloaks on the donkey to sort of make a saddle to soften. 
with softening layers for Jesus to sit on and others begin to strip off their cloaks and throw them on the road and then they begin to strip the palm branches from nearby trees and they begin to wave them and then they pile them on top of all of the coats and those in the front as well as those who are bringing up the rear they begin to shout Hosanna Hosanna, that's the actual Hebrew word in the text, Hosanna, uh, and it means save now, save us now. Blessed, they say, blessed, they sing, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, or send thy salvation out of heaven. Hosanna in the highest. And it's taken right out of Psalm 118. Those phrases are taken directly out of Psalm 118. And this is one of the Hallel Psalms. It's one of those Psalms, one of six Psalms that was used in the feast and celebration of Israel. And, and especially even during this week that was called Passover. The Hallel Psalms were sung in the midst of the Seder meal, in the midst of the Passover meal. And the scripture says that Jesus and his disciples in the, at the time of the Lord's Supper from the upper room, that at the end of supper they sang a hymn as they departed. Perhaps it was this Hallel, the last of the six Hallel Psalms 118 or it might have been it might have been Psalm 136 which is called the great Hallel but at any rate at any rate what I'm saying is these were the these words were known by every every pilgrim who crammed into Jerusalem on that day two million of them they knew the words of Psalm 118 because it was a song they sang with every feast it was on their playlist and so they began to sing it together And it's messianic. It's a messianic psalm with messianic expectations. Wow. What a coronation. But it's a false coronation. Are you telling me that this same crowd five days later will have turned their back on Jesus and they will be screaming before a Roman procurator, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What happened here? Their expectation, their agenda is to throw off the yoke of Rome. It is their expectation is political and military, and he does not come. He will not fit into their plan, their agenda. He will not do their will. He will do the will of the Father, which is to, which is to do the work, a spiritual, a deep spiritual work to provide salvation and grace and forgiveness for all who will stand at the foot of his cross. You understand what we're saying here? They, he, they, they, he would not fit their agenda. And here's the deal. There are false coronations that happen all the time. I see them all the time. Here's how it works. I'm saying, you're rocking along, something comes up, and you make a decision about what you really want God to do, and you start praying that God will do that. And then, and then when you get a no and it doesn't go the way you expect, what do you do? You turn on him. Oh, maybe it's not so overt. Maybe, it's not, maybe you're not screaming crucify. But do you see how often this happens? 
that we misunderstand his work in our lives, his will for our lives is to take us deeper into relationship with him and some problem, some issue, some financial crisis, something happens and we decide what, God, what, the, what, what our will is and we pray and ask God to bless our will and when he doesn't give us what we want, what do we do? There's a third thing here. This is a fitting entrance. This is a fitting entrance. I'm telling you that everything went exactly as the Father had planned for a son. Everything went exactly as planned. And what you need to understand, we have only a little time here, but that everything that was said, everything that was sung about him, if you think about it, everything that was proclaimed about him was absolutely true. He is the one who will save us. He is the one who comes under the authority and in the name of God. He is the true son of David, anointed as your Savior. Brings me to the fourth thing. I hurry here. This is all about a forced choice. It's all about a forced choice. There are two things that happen here. For the first time, listen to me, for the very first time. Now, privately, privately, he's revealed himself to his disciples and to his apostles as their, as their king, as their Messiah. He sought in every way to prepare them. But now, publicly, for the very first time, and openly, he accepts the worship and the recognition of all of Jerusalem, now jammed with over two million visitors and pilgrims on the very first day of Passover. He in no way seeks to deflect their recognition and their worship, and it goes almost without saying, but Matthew tells us in Matthew 20, 21 and verse 10 that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? They welcome him as a conquering king. And so he is, no, not political and military He comes to conquer sin and death and hell, to put it in its place once and for all. But do you see, for the very first time, for the very first time publicly in front of the whole city, he accepts their worship as their king. And that leads to a second thing. By so doing, He forces the opposition out in the open. That's the second thing. He forces the opposition out in the open. No more smoke-filled rooms. No no more backroom scheming. No more meeting behind closed doors. He forces everything out front and center stage. This was all incredibly and carefully planned by the Father and by the Son. And I think about that. See, you know, we're getting ready to launch, right? Team 428. 
surgical team, doctors, nurses, medical supplies, administrators, passports, logistics. There is a ton of stuff that goes into planning a trip like the one we're about to take, right? And so we start asking for medical supplies. We start filling those trunks. We, we start trying to put that team together, make sure we've got nurses for pre-op and post-op and, and, uh, and OR. And we have to cover it, make sure every piece of that is covered. It's incredible to watch. It's fun for me to watch. After all these years, I watch it every year that God just somehow brings the right people, puts them in the right places, works his plan to a T. We're counting on that, right, guys? We're counting on that. And that's exactly what's taking place here. There, this, this is carefully planned. But you just understand it was an act of glorious defiance on Jesus' point. It was, it was incredibly courageous. There was already a price on his head. They were, they were already plotting and planning of how to get rid of him. And he could have slipped in the back door, but he didn't slip in the back door. He didn't try to come in off the radar. He took center stage and came down through the middle of town with everyone cheering, worshiping and praising. It was a deliberate claim on his part to kingship. He fulfilled the prophecy. And every religious leader knew Zechariah 9 verse 9. He's taking charge here of the Passover celebration. He is, he's forcing our hand. Do you see it? He's forcing our hand. We will, we will have to confess him as Lord or we will have to curse him. We will either crown him or we will have to kill him and he just didn't leave us any wiggle room did he not a lick Mark 11 verse 11 says Mark tells us that he entered Jerusalem and he went first he went to the temple and when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And Mark is like just laying the T's down for us, saying, just wait and see what he does on Monday. Mystified, dazed by what he does on Sunday, wait till you see what he does on Monday. That's next week. Stay tuned. But folks... My prayer is that every one of us in this room would come to a place of, realiza of the realization that Jesus does exactly what I said. He leaves us with a choice. And he doesn't leave us wiggle room. He's either who he says he is. Or as C.S. Lewis said, he's a liar and a deceiver or a lunatic. He's either liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Bow with me.